You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Uh, It's wild to me that it's been 50 episodes. Really grateful that you've all been listening for the first 50 and uh, look forward, look, looking forward to putting out the next 50. If you haven't shared this podcast with your friends or reviewed it online, uh, please use this as an opportunity to do so. Uh, joining us on the podcast as a repeat guest, my good friend Dario Fabri, who's a geopolitical analyst in Italy. He's got some interesting things developing right now, but for now, we'll just call him a geopolitical analyst in Italy. We recorded this on Thursday, February 10th. This will come out in about a week Um, We did spend some time talking about Russia and Ukraine, but I don't think anything will meaningfully change between now and then. But if it does, you have an interesting relic from the past to compare against what happens in the next few days. So with that, I will wish you all good health and hope you're staying warm wherever you are and hope you enjoy the podcast. Cheers. See you out there. All right. So, um, Dario, we're so honored and proud uh, to have an Italian presidential candidate on our podcast for the first time in the podcast history. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm not a, I'm not a candidate. I just, uh, for some inexplicable reason, I've received a vote in the second session, if I'm not mistaken, that doesn't amount to much. And I didn't even know who voted for me, but here I am. Thank you for having me. Well, one, one vote for president is one vote more than I've ever received for president. So it, it sounds pretty <laughs> impressive to me. Um, I'm, Dari, I'm not a, old enough. I'm not even old enough to become president. But anyways, who cares? Well, that's I think that's stupid. I'm, I'm done with these 70, 80 year olds being presidents. I think we need some young blood out there. And please, all you all you old folks, don't don't at me. I think it's time for some young blood. But let's not go into my thoughts about that. We're here to talk about geopolitics with an expert from Italy. And uh, I don't think we can start anywhere else besides Russia and Ukraine. Um Mm-hmm. This podcast will appear in about a week, Dario, so we have to keep our comments a little bit forward-looking. But tell me, I mean, I, this week, Macron's been running back and forth to Moscow and Kiev, and uh, you know, German, the German chancellor was in Washington, and I, I know that the, the Brits have been talking to the Russians. Uh, what are the Italians doing, and how do things look from Rome, from your perspective? Well, Rome, when it comes to Russia, kind of pursues the, the usual path. I'd say we're trying to be the mediator. Uh, we're trying to be the, the negotiator. Um, unfortunately, when the things got so rough as they, they seem to be nowadays, uh, the Russians or, or, or even the even the Americans or the Germans, they do not take ourselves that seriously for us to become negotiator or just to stand in the middle of things. But our, our government here, uh, our prime minister, tried to be the mediator, trying to uh, trying to pursue a middle ground between um, Russians and uh, NATO and the U.S. and so forth. The first, Italy's part of NATO. We're, we're an ally to the U.S. But we're also dependent on Russia for our energy. Um, and even more important to me, historically, uh, Italians has always had... Uh, uh, let's say uh, a good feeling towards Russians. We never really, uh, we never really despised Russians. We never, I'd say, we never even feared Russians that much, just because they were they, they were so far from us. You know better than I do that geography plays a big role in in, in, in perceptions 
uh, perceptions of people. And when Russia has perceived it as, as being so far, it's not that fearful, I'd say. It doesn't scare people that much. Uh, so um, Middle East has been trying to pursue the, the usual path, as I said. Uh, but uh, I'd say even from, from afar, and uh, we have to be honest, uh, we, 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 we haven't been playing an important role in the whole crisis. We're just on, on the sideline. Uh, looking in and uh, trying to understand what's going on and uh, even more importantly, what it will happen in the near future. Well, and that, uh, that actually maybe makes you perfectly situated to answer this question more objectively than most, which is what do you think is going to happen? I'm sort of on record here as saying, I think this is all a big bluff and I don't think the Russians are, are going to go hard at Ukraine. I think they're trying to reorganize security architecture and trying to open up some kind of dialogue with the United States um, which maybe you know is not good for Europe. I, I think you can see that in the way that Macron is is running around because I think he feels that the EU is not really asserting itself in this big foreign policy problem. But mm-hmm. do, you, do you think the Russians are serious, or do you also sort of think that this is about political concessions and you don't see a large scale invasion as a as the most likely possibility? I completely agree with you. I believe that uh, if you want to invade a, a country, a massive country as Ukraine is. You have to work on surprise. You have to have the surprise effect. You do not stand with uh, 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine for weeks and weeks if you want to really invade the country. Um, and also Putin, Putin does know that uh, first maybe invading it would be easy, but staying there and even uh, by then trying to uh, exploit the invasion uh, that'd be much more, much harder and much more difficult. So it doesn't want to invade, doesn't want to get uh, bucked down in a war on its near abroad, not at all. Uh, it's trying to, as you said, it's trying to negotiate, it's trying to, to, to get a, a bigger uh, uh, margin, um, a bigger room for maneuvering when it comes to dealing with the U.S., when it comes to dealing with NATO. It's basically trying to say, oh, court, oh Yes, yeah, you gotta you gotta give us something. You gotta grant uh, grant us some concessions, or otherwise we're we're gonna we're gonna wage a war against against Europe or even against our um, our neighbors. But it doesn't want to do that. Uh, Putin, to me, uh, it knows a lot about tactics. He's not uh, well versed in strategy. Just maybe it even does know strategy, but. Uh, Russia lacks uh, the means to pursue its strategy in a, in a proper way. But on a tactical level, is basically perfect. Uh, but now, I don't know if maybe he kind of has uh, gotten himself into a corner here because I don't know what it, what, it, what it will do next. And uh, let me be also clear on something. Uh, we know history. Um, sometimes even when no one wants, wants war, worse happen anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if, if you're with uh, with uh, thousands thousands of troops uh, at the border, an incident might might occur, and uh, one thing one might might lead to another, and you you get bucked down in a war anyways, even if even if you didn't want to in the first place. So I'm not discarding completely the idea of war. I think that no one wants it, which doesn't mean that it won't happen for sure. Uh, that said. Um, a negotiation has been going on for, for weeks now. To me, what the Russians are basically telling the, the Americans is, 
you need to give us some 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 truce. You need a truce with us on the European front because you need to focus on the Indo-Pacific. So if that's true, leave us alone at least for a bit, even for maybe for quite a long time on our near abroad. Meaning Ukraine cannot join NATO, even in maybe in in ten. 20 years from now, and also Belarus, and also Georgia, uh, just because, to me, that's what Putin has been telling the, the U.S., just because you need Russia not to get too close to China, not to get even closer to China. And for you to, to get that, you need to leave us a bit alone on our near abroad, just considering that uh, the U.S. has gotten, at least to me, all that he wanted in Europe, even more than he wanted in Europe, when when it comes to a, to the expansion of NATO, uh, the U.S. doesn't need Ukraine to be a member of NATO. Doesn't need Belarus to be a member of NATO or Georgia for for for, for the sake of it. So these are the terms of the of the uh, of the of the whole thing for me. And uh, but to 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 answer your question, I don't know how it will all uh, end up. Um, not sure at all. I think that they might find a compromise, but to um, to understand what kind of compromise they will find, that's that's um, that's very hard. I think you made a pretty brilliant point there that I haven't made that I haven't heard made elsewhere, which is that um, that the U.S. has gotten almost everything that it could have ever possibly wanted out of Eastern Europe, and I guess that always depends on kind of where you start your perspective from. But let's say you're a U.S. strategic decision maker in 1985. You don't know the Soviet Union's about to collapse. If, if you told that person, hey, in approximately 30 to 40 years, uh, the Soviet Union will collapse and most of Eastern Europe will be in NATO and you know mm-hmm. Russian troops will be fooling around on the border with Ukraine and Belarus. But they would probably take that as a monumental success every <laughs> single day of the week. True. Um, so th- there is something I think about the American foreign policy psyche, uh, which is that it's never enough. And I'm not, I'm not justifying kind of where the U S has been. And I'm certainly not saying all this to justify what the Russians are doing. Cause the Russians will take that and kind of twist it and say, aha, so, you know, this means that we should have this and you should bargain with us. I'm not saying yeah, that right, I am right. just saying there is something about the U S where it doesn't seem to have any humility in its grand strategy. It's it's become so powerful that it just it just sort of expects that everybody's going to be a democracy and everything's everybody's going to do exactly what they want, and that's just not how things work. So I, I think that's a brilliant point. But Dario, I wanted to ask because um, as you were talking, this this question also came to my mind, which was what what is Italy's greatest geopolitical threat? right now from your perspective? And I ask that question because I imagine that it's not Russia and not anything that Russia is doing in Ukraine or Belarus, but I can't actually think of what the answer is. Turkey. Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. Is Italy's main threat. Of course, Turkey is another NATO member, but that doesn't really matter. Just because Turkey has been advancing and advancing in our near abroad, meaning Libya, uh, the Balkans, North Africa as a whole, and also Eastern Mediterranean Sea. Uh, yeah, Turkey is also, it's not only the main threat for us, it's also an empire, or at least a country that, that behaves as an empire. And that's something that Italy is very, um, has, doesn't really have the means to, uh, to deal with. Hmm. Uh, it's very difficult for, for, for us to deal with Turkey. 
Um, it gets difficult and difficult by the day. Um, you have to consider that now Turkey controls Tripolitania, which is, of course, the western part of Libya. And also, um, Turkey has been uh, advancing, as I said, in the Balkans, something that uh, the Ottoman Empire um, controlled for, for centuries. And um, meaning that we're kind of encircled now by, by Turkey. We just have the western flank, which is, uh, 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 let's say, free of Turkey, so to speak. But uh, our southern and eastern flank, they're, they're now uh, almost controlled by Turkey. And if you, if you even consider that Albania is getting closer and closer to Turkey in, in, in the past couple of years, that, uh, that makes the whole scenario even, even darker for us, for us. Now, of course, uh, officially we're allies. Italy and Turkey, they're allies, even, even in Tripolitania and Libya. But the reality is very different, very different. We hoped, actually, maybe we still hope that the U.S. might, might kind of rein in on, on, on Turkey's ambitions. Um, but to, I don't think it'll happen, especially not in the near future, because not only because the U.S. doesn't really care now about Libya and uh, the Balkans and so forth, but also because, and now I would like to, to hear your opinion on this, but also because the U.S. considers Turkey very useful when it comes to uh, containing Russia uh, somehow, uh, especially in the, in, the, in the Black Sea or, or in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Russians are also in Libya, in the eastern part of it. But also because the U.S. considers Turkey useful when it comes to containing Iran in the Middle East. So to me, uh, if we if we uh, we think we hope that the U.S. might intervene for us against Turkey, we we could be badly mistaken. I don't know how you how you look at this. I think that well, I think your point about the U.S. thinking that Turkey is very useful in its competition with Russia is dead on, and I think that actually raises some interesting questions because that actually sort of means that Italy probably has more in common with with Russia and most of most of the European countries probably have more in common from a strategic perspective with Russia than they do with Turkey. And we can see the way Turkey has been using the Ukrainian crisis to insert themselves there as well. They're talking about, you know, building military drones for the Ukrainians and talking up the Turkish Ukrainian relationship, all of which I'm sure just makes Putin feel even more insecure and makes the Russian foreign policy establishment even more insecure sure, in terms sure. of in, in terms of how the u.s deals with turkey though um we also have to add uh, jacob that turkey considers turkey considers uh, crimea a turkish land somehow mm -hmm. you know the the tatters and and, and so on and then other stuff so yeah yeah you're right about uh, turkey and the russia kind of vying for uh, for a position in ukraine and crimea yeah. Well, and if and if Turkey wants to define things on an Islamic basis, could probably consider all the way to the gates of Vienna, <laughs> Turkish territory, <laughs> to your point about empires. Yeah. Um, let's hope it doesn't get there. But I think you're yeah. right that the U.S. is dealing with very outmoded foreign policy. I don't think it quite understands the extent to which Turkey is asserting itself. There, there are two. Well, like there's one silver lining to that. And then I think there is one indication of some change on the U.S. perspective. The silver mm -hmm. lining is that Turkey's going through a very difficult time economically right now. Yeah. Um, the things that Erdogan is doing. Financially, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I've been more um, 
I, I don't dismiss what Erdogan is doing financially as crazy at all. I sort of see what he's trying to do. He's trying to have more independence for his economy by getting it off the dollar. And I think all of this stuff that he's talking about with interest rates and the Quran and inflation, it's all he's all trying to get his economy True. less dependent on the dollar so that down the road, the U.S. doesn't have so much influence on Turkey the way it does right now. Um, so I think that's preventing him from doing anything, especially going into elections. And, you know, the other silver lining there is that Turkey is still a democracy. It's an imperfect one, as all democracies are. But I don't view Erdogan as a dictator yet. He might have aspirations to do so. And if he can wrap up another victory in 2023 and mm -hmm. impose some more restrictions, maybe he gets there. But it's all kind of in the balance. So I don't think he's quite ready to push from that perspective. And then the indicator of change, and I'd be curious to get your take on this particular issue, yep. is... Um, you know, I think the Iran nuclear deal, I think it's happening in the next four to eight weeks. I don't want to look like an idiot and, and call that because it might take months to go back. But um, U.S. policy towards Iran has not made sense for a generation. And with high oil prices, with ISIS poking up its head again in parts of Syria and Iraq and looking a little bit more feisty, all the conditions are there, I think, for the United States and Iran to at least get back to treating each other not like pariahs and like mortal enemies. And setting Iran and Turkey up in a kind of balance of power, which which would also be great, probably for European energy security. But how how are you thinking about Iran from that perspective? I think you're right. I think we're uh, well. That's what uh, people involved with uh, with the negotiation are are telling us that the deal is very is imminent. I'd say is very close to be to be reached to be brokered. I mean, the, the so-called nuclear deal, I mean, so-called because the nuclear part of it, to me, is not even the most important part of it. Mm -hmm. what, what they've been trying to do, just because Iran doesn't have uh, a nuclear bomb, uh, and uh, maybe it won't have a nuclear bomb for years, even if we try, even if we try so. Um, that said, um, I think they're, what, what they've been trying to, um, uh, to reach a deal on is uh, the position that Iran is supposed to take in the Middle East, something that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't bother the U.S. too much, at least. And I mean, um, the U.S. From in the past, I'd say ten years, um, as you said, has, has had a, um, uh, a kind of uh, let's call it a, a, a inconsequential uh, uh, attitude towards Iran. Are just because they didn't they didn't really understand how to uh, to approach Iran, how to pursue uh, Iran. Um, but what what to me uh, has been clear so far is that uh, every time that Iran looks on a rice, the U.S. Uh, goes back to sanctions, mm -hmm. and when Iran looks on the downsides, of course they're trying to reach a deal with 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 it, with Iran. Uh, let's take the Islamic State. When the slime stick was on the rise, uh, it was back in the 2014, 2015, the U.S. wanted to reach a deal with Iran just because they, they, they thought, the U.S. thought that Iran was weak back then because Iran had to deal with what, what basically the Islamic State is, the, the Arab uh, insurgency. And uh, so they, they figured, the U.S. figured that Iran had its own hands full and so couldn't be really uh, that dangerous anymore for years to come. But then the Islamic State was was kind of destroyed in in, in, in a short span of time. It was also by by the with, with the help of the of, of the of the Russians, and um, the U.S. has always um, has gone back to sanctions uh, towards Iran. 
So now, to me, the U.S. looks at Iran as if Iran was in a weak position, and I think that is correct. Iran now is in a is in a weak position. It's not a strong it's not a strong uh, power now. It's not on a rise, and uh, for the U.S. to find uh, the, a way to uh, to broker a deal is is the right thing to do with Iran. But you're right. If the U.S. Uh, brokers a deal. Uh, for good with Iran, or maybe for 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 the time being with Iran, that spells bad and boats boats bad for uh, for Turkey, because Turkey might become less useful uh, to the U.S. And of course, the U.S. won wage war against Turkey, but as you said, the U.S. has got many financial levers to hurt Turkey, uh, as long as Turkey doesn't uh, doesn't. Uh, doesn't go beyond the dollar, as you said, and I agree. That's that's maybe the main goal that uh, Erdogan has been trying to pursue for two or three or four years, so even even for the past five years, I'd say. Yeah, and Tur- and Turkey is still also so critically dependent on foreign energy imports too that it it makes them weak. But in also, in many yeah, ways, it, it's also dependent on Russia on the on that front. Yeah, so it it just doesn't. By the way, <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Um, all right. Well, let, let's leave that aside. I'd, I'd like to talk about Europe a little bit too, Dario. Mm-hmm. I know, I know you have Germany on your mind, but where kind of where do you think Europe is as an actor? I know this week they just announced their big semiconductor plan. Um, they uh-huh. unveiled a big initiative in Africa as their response to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, the EU is behaving. It's it's got a little a little more moxie than it usually has. It's it's starting to behave to me like a more sovereign and a, and a stronger entity, but. I wonder if if you feel those winds of change, or if I'm giving it too much credit. I feel the winds of change, but I also think that you're giving it too much credit. Um, <laughs> That's good. Um, what I mean is, yeah, especially on on commercial energy fronts, the U.S. has been trying to uh, to present itself as a unified front. But then when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to strategy, position, positions inside the EU is, are very different. Uh, let's take Russia. Uh, European countries, the members of the EU, they're very, very far from, from, from each other when it comes to Russia. Uh, you have Poland, and, and Poland, of course, considers, and I even understand why, but uh, Poland considers Russia as the, as the mortal enemy, as the main foe. Then you have Spain doesn't really care anything about Russia, and uh, or even Italy, as, as, as we talked before. Italy has got a sort of a, a nice approach, nice attitude towards Russia. So um, that, or even if you take France, France now wants to make love to Russia, basically. <laughs> uh, and then then you have Germany. To Germany, Russia is maybe the most difficult uh, issue of all. Germany doesn't really know how to behave towards Russia. Um, let's let's remember uh, an historical anecdote um, back in the 19th century, when when the scramble for Africa was was beginning and Germany was late and was late at the, um, was late at the party. Um, uh, I remember that. Uh, an advisor of Bismarck, Chancellor uh, Bismarck, went to him with a huge map of Africa, trying to convince him that Germany, uh, the the German Empire, 
had to pursue Africa. They needed uh, to be there, just as the other colonial powers ailing from Europe. And Bismarck, of course, listened to him, even nodded. But then he said, of course, that's all good, wonderful, but let's all, let's all remember that our Africa is Russia. So I, of course, things have changed, uh, many years have passed, uh, but to Germany, Russia is still the most difficult issue to tackle. Uh, not only because Germany is dependent on Russia when it comes to energy, but also because Germany looks at Russia almost, it might, might sound strange to many people, but also with a colonial attitude. They look at Russia's energy and they think we need it and we can exploit it. They look at Russia's manpower and first they fear it, but they also think that it might be useful for Germany's industry. And uh, yeah, then they buy for different, for, they buy for influence in Eastern Europe. Let's remember the Maidan revolution when, when even Germany back then had created a, a president, Vitaly Klitschko, who was now uh, mayor of Kiev. But uh, the Germans thought that he could be their president mm -hmm. in, in Ukraine. Then the U.S., of course, they said, no, 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 we, we do not want him. You remember Victoria Nuland when she said, fuck the EU. And she actually meant fuck Germany, basically. I'm sorry for the, uh, for the bad word. No, this, uh, this, this podcast loves bad words. And I mean, just, <laughs> just, just a brief aside, like, I thought Victoria Nuland was supposed to be a diplomat, and she seems to be the least diplomatic person ever and still runs around making U.S. foreign policy. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so um, going back to your question, uh, yeah, the U.S. trying to, uh, to move to, 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 to carefully tread on some, some, some issue as a unified front. But when it comes to uh, issues of life and death, when it comes to issues of where, where war might be involved, uh, the European countries have all, always have different positions. Just because we do not have a European nation, uh, we have common interests on, on on some issues. But when it comes to strategy, when it comes to uh, yeah, life and death, I'd say um, European countries they they tend to to move and and with with a different fashion in a different fashion. From, from from each other that's something that, that hasn't changed a lot in, in the past 20 years. I think that's fair that there's not a European nation and perhaps there will never be one, but there obviously is Especially a Europe because, Jacob, to have a European nation and to get there, we need a, a war, I think. And uh, and I, I'd, rather, I'd rather not have a war to have a European nation. No. Just because I... usually nations, they... they they were born out of wars, and um, maybe we could be an exception, but I'm not willing to try. <laughs> but but I think it is fair to say, though, that there is a European economy and that Europe as an True. economy is True. more interconnected than it ever has been before and is still becoming more so. And you sort no of talked about it. how on a, on a life or death basis, you know, European states have different interests. But what is the economy if not life and death? That's about putting food on the table and plugging your iPhone in so you can look at the latest videos on TikTok. God forbid you shouldn't have that. I mean, isn't there some extent to which the the coming together of the European economy, it, it's not going to be a nation. There's still going to be these disagreements, but that 
um, in a certain sense, Europe's life is dependent on protecting that economy to a certain extent. Is that fair? Yeah, this this is fair, and uh, and I agree with you. The I don't know if it's the only, but the main issue where you can't find a common front inside the EU is the economy. Even trade, trade and economy. Um, as you said, those are very important issues. And it's even silly for me to, to say this. Um, yeah, you're right. But I also believe that uh, strategy, when, when it comes to uh, communities, nations, we know that economy and, and, and maths and, and, and the figures and data, they're not the main reasons why uh, nations and states pursue their foreign policy. Yeah, they're important, but sometimes, you know, mood and, and, and stereotypes and uh, racism or even strategy uh, they they get in they get involved they get into play and, and and they play even a bigger role to me, so you're right. But I think that uh, the EU lacks the 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 other part. Uh, when when I say a punta, when I say um, uh, mood and, and sentiment and uh, belonging and that those are uh, factors that the EU lacks for, for, for definitely for for real that. Uh, that do not enable the EU to become um, an actor, I'd say. Mm -hmm. The EU is an actor when it comes to trade and economy. It's not an, a geopolitical actor when it comes to uh, strategy or, or, or foreign policy as a, as a whole, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, I'll put you on the spot here and say, so let's, hypothetical question, let's say it's the year 2030. Which of mm -hmm. these scenarios do you think is more likely? Do you think it's more likely that... Um, some nations have joined the European Union, so maybe North Macedonia or some of these others get in. Do you mm -hmm. think it's more likely that the EU is the exact same membership roster as it is right now? Or do you think that you're going to lose a state or two? Is, is Hungary going to get pushed to the outs? Is, is Poland going to uh, no. go to head with Brussels? Which of those do you think is the most likely possibility by 2030? Well, I'll start with the last thing that you said. I don't think Poland or Hungary, for that for that matter, well, I think they won't leave, or, and even more importantly, won't be pushed to leave just because Germany needs them. Um, doesn't really Germany doesn't really want them to leave, not at all. Uh, for the other part of the question, is very difficult. Uh, that's a wicked question. Um, I don't know. Maybe the roster will stay the same, or. Uh, I, I do not think that other countries will leave. I'm not sure if other countries will join, but uh, I'm positive that we won't see other countries leaving in the, in the next seven or eight years. Um, what, what has happened in the past year with, with the pandemic and all is that Germany realized that it had to, uh, to, put, it, to put itself online meaning uh, to guarantee in front, of, in front of the markets for other countries, especially for Italy, something that maybe five years ago or 10 years ago would be considered uh, unimaginable. Mm. Um, Germany is now, yeah, is at the center of the EU, especially when it comes to economy and trade. And Germany, uh, to me at least, has understood that uh, that 
that he needs to uh, to push itself uh, more than he than he did in the past years to 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 keep uh, all the countries inside instead of pushing them on the brink or even uh, force them to leave. And that won't change for, for in, in the next years to me. So maybe the roster will stay the same and the Nazi countries leaving. I'm not sure about other countries joining in, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'd say I, I'd find uh, uh, unlikely uh, for, for, for some countries to leave. I think that was an excellent answer to a wicked question. Um, <laughs> before I let you go, Dario, I wanted to hit on two kind of more domestic issues. Um, and before we get to your native Italy, um, do you have any thoughts on France's upcoming elections, where you see Macron going, what, what Italy wants or hopes from the French election? Tell me what you're I don't thinking. know. I don't know. Um, I don't know about elections. Um, here in Italy, people tend to look at Macron as if, um, well, let's say this. The Italians never really understood how France looks at Europe. Hmm. Many people here think that France looks at Europe the same way Italy does. France looks at Europe as a platform to uh, uh, to exert more influence around the continent. France almost looks at the EU as something of its own. Uh, France considers itself the uh, the leader of the EU. Even if we if we think about the um, almost impossible European army, to to France is very is very easy. The European army would be paid for by the Germans and commanded by the French <laughs> to damn it at work. So sometimes here in Italy, people look at Macron and considers him uh, considers him as a uh, I don't know, neutral leader of Europe, something of course he cannot be, especially considering that the French president is almost a king, he's got the powers of a king, is not even comparable to the American president. Mm. When the Fifth Republic started, uh, General Charles de Gaulle, at first he wanted to, uh, to copy the U.S. Constitution. He, uh, he charged his main advisor, Michel Debray, with, uh, with the task. He said, okay, write me a new constitution, which will be the fifth republic constitution, which is still, of course, uh, on. And uh, please make it very similar to the U.S. Constitution. Then they went back to him. Get, he's gotten back to him and he said, yeah, of course, but uh, uh, General De Gaulle, you have to know that the, that the American president cannot uh, never... Uh, uh, um, mm, Close, uh, close up the Congress, meaning uh, it cannot uh, 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 say when a session of Congress is over, when it starts, and so forth. Something that even the Italian president can do. Hmm. And so uh, the goal said, of course, no, that's not enough. I need more powers. So when we look at French election, when we look at, at a French president, we have to consider that he's got uh, almost uh, uh, the powers of a king. So uh, here in Italy, they, they look at France without understanding all this stuff. They look at France as if France was Italy with a bad weather. But hmm. um, it's, not, it's not true. Uh, France considers itself um, still as a great power, uh, Francophonie, and they, they have the nuclear, of course, they have the nuclear arsenal and so forth. Um, 
So I don't know about elections. I believe that uh, also here we have to consider that French, uh, the France, uh, in France, uh, elections sometimes they they seem unpredictable, but then they turn out to be very predictable in the end. So I don't know if this will be the case as well. I might be I might be mistaken, but I can I can say that here in Italy people do not understand uh, French politics, and even more importantly, French attitude towards Europe in a in a proper way, at least to me. Yeah. Um, well, I'll get you out of here on this, Dario, because I know you've got got places to be doing important things. But uh, <laughs> you, you in Italy also just had presidential elections, if yeah. you can call them that. I think you had like, what, five rounds, six rounds, and you ended up with the person yeah. that you started with at the end of exactly. it all. Exactly. But you, you still have this government. Things to be seem to be okay. But it also seems like Draghi is the only prime minister that's going to actually make things work, and he can't rule forever. So tell me how you're thinking about Italian domestic politics. Well, uh, here, uh, that, that's also a difficult one. Um, now Italy's been trying to, uh, uh, to take advantage of money coming from the next generation EU fund. You know, the fund that has been uh, set up for the pandemic, guaranteed by the Germans. And um, here the government has been taxed with uh, uh, making uh, money coming from Europe, as people would say here, making money coming from Europe uh, uh, work, especially when it comes to reforms and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the government has been, has been tasked with this role here. And now we're, we're getting closer to the, to the hard part. For now, the government has just prepared the plans, has set up the plans, and uh, you know, promised to do reforms, to do investments, and especially in Southern Italy. But now we're, we're getting closer and closer to the hard part, which means making things work and change things, using money to change things. So now we're gonna see how things will, will, will end up. Um, let's also consider here that uh, next year, we're gonna have political elections in Italy, meaning that the government will change uh, so I don't know. I'd say that uh, the future is not is not that clear here. Uh, people are kind of uh, happy now with with the government, just because we still need to see things. The government, for 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 different reasons, has got uh, people trust the government. Mm -hmm. uh, for different reasons, because the prime minister is, is taken on in high esteem by, by, by public opinion, and, uh, and but now we're going to see maybe if, if if the government is for real, if if he can deliver those promises that is that that has that has been making for for, for the past months. I don't know. Um, the future is very difficult to uh, to predict for Italy now. Um, maybe if you get back to me in a six months or maybe even better in a year, I might be more precise for now. That's, that's, that's the only answer that I can provide you with. Well, I hope to get back to you multiple times, but we'll definitely get back, <laughs> too, back to you too. within a year. But let me just ask you this last question, which is, you know, as an, and I, I know that this is a terrible thing to ask. A ge it's terrible to ask a geopolitical analyst about his own country, but are you personally, optimistic about the Italian government's ability to, as you said, use money to enact change that Italy needs? Or do you think it's just going to be business as usual? 
I can even be optimistic about the government. I'm not that optimistic about the um, bureaucracy of Italy because it's not the government that will, it's, it's not only, let's say this, it's not only the government that will use the money, that will even, it's only the government that will, uh, um, you know, allocate the money and, and, and make, make those money uh, fruitful. Uh, it gets also down to, be, to bureaucracy and um, that would make things more complicated for sure. So I don't know if I'm, I'm not pessimistic, but I cannot even say that I'm optimistic just because factors are, are too complicated and the things that get involved are, are different and complicated as well. So I'm, let's say I'm mildly optimistic um, but um, but I'm ready to be a uh, to be yeah I'd say that I'm ready to get surprised by 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 the events uh, going forward. Okay, well, Dario, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time, and we will have you back on hopefully very soon. Okay, it was, it was a great pleasure. Uh, whenever you want, Jacob. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.